Acquiring Independence podcast is a conversation about the RIA space, hosted by Austin Philbin, with friends and guests that include individuals spanning the entire spectrum of wealth management. A high-energy, insightful creation, this show aims to demystify many of the myths of financial services and provide insights, fresh ideas, and a true look into what it takes to be a successful wealth management entrepreneur. We'll ask the questions that need to be answered by any firm looking to drive scale, efficiency, and enterprise value. Today's guest host will be Joe Rizzo, Director of Mergers and Acquisitions at Dynasty Financial Partners. Hello, and welcome to today's podcast. My name is Joe Rizzo. I am the Director of M&A here at Dynasty Financial Partners. And we have a terrific topic for you that is timely and also very important. The title of today's podcast is Second Chapter Succession Planning for RIAs. Today we have Brad Griswold, who's the founder and managing partner of Corbenic Partners, uh, founded there in Bethlehem, PA. Um, most of the focus of the firm is spent on franchise owners of fast food restaurants, built a terrific practice built on that. Also has uh, quite a few young people on his team that help carry the torch and deliver a terrific client experience there at Corbenic. We also have Mark DeBersion, who's the chief executive officer of Advisor Solutions for BNY Melling Pershing and a member of Pershing's executive committee. Pershing is one of the country's largest custodians for registered investment advisors and family offices, and certainly look forward to his insight into succession planning. One of the reasons he has four different books, and I'm going to read you the titles, give you a backdrop of his experience in this world. Practice Made Perfect was uh, his first book, How to Value, Buy, Sell a Financial Advisory Practice, Practice Made More Perfect, and an enduring advisory firm. So, gentlemen, thank you so much for joining us here Thanks today. Thanks for having us. Thanks, Joe. I think a good place to start, and, you know, as you do research, I think a lot of folks talk about succession planning and interesting numbers that come up, and, and most people that are talking about uh, succession planning kind of, they share this. There's 28% of the advisors uh, feel like they have some sort of plan for succession. And they're, they're somewhat prepared. And I got that from Financial Planning Association. A third of them are leaving the business in the next 10 years. Uh, three years ago, 33% of those folks were willing to sell. Now it's up to 50%. And 71% of the folks that are considering selling are doing it for succession purposes. However, there's another 51% that would tack on growth and scale to the selling of their practice. So I, I think that's an interesting framework to, to position this in. And just so the audience knows, I, I think the important part is to get um, shaping of the industry and, and how the industry is thinking about succession planning and what Mark is doing to lead Pershing into the future with that framework. And then I also, from uh, Brad's uh, standpoint, you know, you're starting to move down the road of considering and putting together a succession plan. So I think the, the combination of both these uh, perspectives is going to be really powerful. Let's get right into it, Mark. Um, again, amazing uh, history in, in the industry. You wrote four books, m and in a lot of them. And you also have to think about what you're doing for Pershing to position them strategically to capture this opportunity or at least mitigate risk. Just walk us through your thinking around succession planning and, and really how the industry is handling it right now. Thank you. So uh, I have been a student of the business for quite a while, uh, the business in particular of personal finance and uh, financial advice. And obviously, as a, as a company that provides services, particularly custodial services to advisory firms and clearing services to broker-dealers, we have to think about what the future of this business is going to look like and how people are adjusting to it. As you've alluded to, uh, I've been dealing with the question of practice management, business valuation, succession planning, uh, going all the way back to the early 1980s. And uh, as I think about it, uh, frankly, nothing has changed in those 35 or 40 years. That uh, the lack of planning, ironically, in this business uh, is uh, probably at an all-time high. 
And it occurred to me about a decade ago that one of the reasons why this is a challenge is that uh, is that many uh, owners of advisory firms think that succession planning is all about their exit, not about their growth. And so as soon as you introduce terms like estate or death or taxes, uh, it's probably something they're going to run for the hills uh, because it's not a popular topic. But the reality is that uh, as fiduciaries, we have a responsibility to our clients, and that's to ensure the business continues long after you're gone. Whether you left voluntarily or involuntarily, you're going to be departing. So we have to put this all into context with what our reality is, that in the last 10 years, there are 40,000 fewer financial professionals uh, than there were in 2010. And you made this point that roughly a third of, uh, of financial advisors will be gone in a decade. So they will either be retired or underground. Either way, it'll be closer to the sand, and we have to be conscious of that. Uh, the uh, efforts to recruit and renew uh, our base of professionals has been uh, rather anemic. Uh, the average age is still in the high 50s. Uh, the good news is that there are about 100-plus universities around the country that are conferring degrees in financial planning, and there are 100 more that are uh, conferring certificates in financial planning. So there's a factory of educated students that are emerging, but people are reluctant to hire young individuals to come in to the business. At the same time, we have an oversupply of clients. We have a genuine need uh, to invest in the development of professionals to serve these individuals. But I think that one of our challenges is that the industry is comprised of small businesses, and human capital doesn't come to the fore in most small businesses. We're mostly thinking about survival or growth or serving more clients, not how do we hire, develop, train, uh, and, uh, and ultimately make partners of individuals in the business. So we have this dynamic that we're dealing with, and I think that we still have uh, opportunity to change uh, on, a f on an industry-wide basis, but individually people will have to say, what is ultimately my obligation to clients and do I want to leave a business that will endure or one that will die with me? I bring up a great point. I always find it interesting that as people move into retirement, they forget about the growth and they just think about the, the door being open for them to enjoy the retirement or not and really just try to stay attached to the practice. And, uh, you know, they're not thinking about growing that entity and getting the most value out of it as they're moving into a point where that's where they're going to realize it. So um, great point, Mark. Brad, that was a pretty good backdrop to, you know, the question I have for you, which is um, you're moving into thinking about putting together a succession plan. Uh, maybe walk us through uh, your decision making to get to that point, and then may, and then uh, talk a little bit about what steps you've taken so far uh, to initiate that plan. So, first, I have to tell you, I suddenly feel like a statistic because I'm 59 <laughs> years old. Ten years <laughs> is my my you know goal for having completed a succession plan. Um, so it, it's a little bit you know. Per, close and personal at, at the moment. This is not an intervention, by the way, so you're okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, I appreciate that because, you know, hopefully I'm self-aware enough uh, to realize that this is something that, you know, is important not only on a personal level but an industry level. Um, and it's interesting because talking with my, my peers uh, about this issue, you know, it, it seems to – it comes down to, to two different things. Um, some of my peers are just looking for a liquidity event. They're, they're, they're getting to a point in their career that, where they're saying, I want to exit from here. Um, others are saying, you know what, the firm is going to transition into something different, something new. And they have to be instrumental in, in that process. And, and I can't agree with you more that if we're taking this seriously, succession planning or a transition is really – critical because it's so important to the clients. If we're fiduciaries to our clients today, we have to be fiduciaries and good stewards in the future. And to do that, we have to be uh, very aware of our limitations as, as advisors get older and, and the need to train the next generation. So 
I think it's great that we have universities that are now out there promoting the CFP program. Um, but I, uh, unfortunately, what I see some lack of is older advisors acting as mentors today. Um, and I can see that within my own firm. So I, I'm here in New York. I was meeting with a, a client today, and as we started the meeting, uh, it's a young couple. Uh, I said, obviously, I brought another one of my advisors with me, and there's, there's a reason. I said, because 10 years from now, I won't be here. 10 years from now, you're going to need someone at the table helping you, guiding you, and it has to be someone that you can have a long-term relationship with. Well, you know, the advisor that, that, that came into the city with me today, he's 30 years my junior. Intimately qualified, a CFP, a, a CPA, um, well-rounded in his professional background, but he is key for the firm and for the clients to be able to transition someday in the future so that we can be good stewards. And, and fortunately for me, I have more than one of those individuals. What, what's the problem, though? The problem is it takes a lot of time to, to work with them, to mentor them, and to also introduce them into situations, especially you know deep, long-term relationships that you've had. But if you're not doing that, you're, you're really not, you know, fully embracing your responsibility as, as a founder of a firm or as a managing partner or director of a firm. It, it's, it's what we need to be all doing. Or to the clients. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think this is a really great example, Brad, because, uh, uh, in fact, the CFP Board Center for Financial Planning recently wrote a white paper on career paths within the advisory profession, that unlike the accounting or law profession or even the medical profession, there hasn't been that discipline and that process that you talked about. And what we generally find is that it takes 8 to 12 years to fully bake a partner. But there has to be a disciplined process, as you're doing with those individuals, that the first phase is they're mastering the job. The second phase is they're mastering the relationship. The third phase is understanding that they have a responsibility to grow and build the business and develop relationships with the firm itself. And so as we find that um, that firms are taking more of a team approach to client service rather than an individual approach, that's a major transformation that will better enable uh, succession as you're talking about. Yeah, and, and fortunately for me, um, you know, time is critical in this process. So I started the succession planning uh, process earlier in my career. And, and to be quite candid, you know, I, I probably made some mistakes in not embracing the mentoring component as much mm. as I should have. Now, fortunately, because I started the succession planning process early enough, I was able to come back and say, okay, I need to do this again, and I need to, to be more thoughtful about it and I need to invest more of my own personal time in it. And fortunately, I do have the next 10 years to, to work on that. So I think we're going to be in a good position. But if you're trying to do this, you know, five years from walking out the door, it's going to be challenging, right. and it's, it's going to limit your, your options dramatically. Well, I think first you're trying to find the right person, right? It has competency and skill set to be able to step into a role like that. And financial advisor, the ones that are good, that's a rare breed. Well, well, it is. And, and you know, in, in the current environment with employment being so low, you know, everybody has a job. So you're not going to go out and post something and have 10 potential candidates walk in your door. You have to network. And, and what I've found has worked for us is to let my younger advisors actually do the networking. And I've been honest with them and said, I need a couple more of you. Let's go out and mm. find them. Because it can't just be my hire. It has to be something that they participate in. Because we're building the next team for the future. It's probably not going to be my team. Mm. And I have to recognize that. It's going to be their team. And that has actually been fruitful for us. Uh, so when I sometimes talk to my, my peers and they you know, lament about the ability to not attract young advisors. And I'm thinking, well, I have three that are intimately qualified who I think are going to mature in their professional career. I feel very fortunate. 
of course, now the trick is keeping them. Right? <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm, that's a wonderful response too because I think that uh, owners of advisory firms do a great injustice to uh, young people who should be attracted to this business. Uh, but I think that we've created uh, a profession where it isn't compelling when it should be compelling. I mean, just think about it. It's it's a it's a career, and you've lived it, where you're intellectually stimulated. You have a degree of independence. You profoundly impact the lives of others. You're financially rewarded. Just add long walks on the beach. This is a great personal ad. <laughs> Yet here we are, not being a compelling choice compared to being a, a private equity person or investment banker or a doctor or a lawyer or an accountant. And I don't think any one of those other professions makes the same kind of impact on people's lives as the work that you do in this business, except perhaps for medicine. So uh, so part of this is really an attitude shift, is when people become leaders of these firms, uh, it can no longer be underestimating individuals, but rather uh, estimating that they're the type of people that would make a difference in their client lives and the way they do it. But the second part of it is exactly, I think, what you said, Brad, is this whole notion of making a conscious decision in how you develop people. That I think when you have this approach that your very best employee is as important as your very best client, then you take an entirely different approach to how you invest the time in that relationship. Oh, and I can't agree more. And, and to do that effectively um, as, you know, as a founder of a firm or as a, as a partner in a firm – you need to realize that your your allocation of time has to change. Yes. It can't be all client-focused. And, and it's interesting because I've had conversations with clients over the past several years where they've said, you know, when can you come and see us? And, and I've said, I, I can't. And they said, well, why not? And I said, well, because my time right now needs to be spent investing in the next generation that is not only going to take care of you, but also take care of me someday. So it is in your best interest for me not to show up, but for the next generation to show up and for me to spend time preparing them for when they're sitting next to you. And some clients get it immediately. Some clients, of course, are going to say, but, you know, we've been sitting down for 30 years and you have to nuance it and say, well, I'm not disappearing, but I just may not be always there. I may not be always the one on the other end of the phone or always having dinner with you. We're going to have to introduce that. And it changes difficult for a lot of people, not just on the advisory side, but the client side. So you have to be sensitive to it. And, and as I've said to clients, you know, this is a process. It's not going to happen overnight. It's going to happen over the next 10 years or so. So we're going to work at it together. Uh, and, and I think if you can do that, not only do the clients have a greater comfort because that stranger at the table becomes a known quantity, but from a business standpoint, your retention of the families that you work with is considerably higher. So there's good business reasons to do it, too. It's just changing where you're investing your time. Terrific answer. I think I was going to ask, well, how did the client react to the conversation that you had this afternoon? But I think you just hit on it a little bit. Well, fortunately for us, this was a younger couple. So for them, it made absolute sense. Um, however, I've had other clients where I've said, you know, probably the next 10 years or so, I'll be materially, you know, slowing down and, and stepping away. Uh, and I was actually at a dinner in, in, in uh Florida one night, and I saw the wife counting on her fingers. I think she was basically looking at her age and my longevity <laughs> in the firm, and she said, okay, we're good. Let's order, <laughs> which was nice. That's beautiful. Um, but, but the reality was it's, it's a difficult conversation yeah. for some people. How about the emotions for you? You talk yeah. through the client. You talk, I'm sure the young advisors that you're working with are excited to be in that position, but how about for you, as you're moving closer and closer to the time where you are reducing your time in the practice and reducing time with clients and handing over that big responsibility of fiduciary you know, and protecting those clients, what are you feeling? Um, well, mixed emotions, obviously. And so, so going back to something Mark said about you know the compelling reasons why somebody would want to be in this industry, um, 
one of the compelling reasons for me was the ability to to build these deep lasting relationships with clients where you were able to come in and work through their financial life with them and hopefully getting them to a point where they became very successful. It was very gratifying. And when you work through, you know, the first generation into the second generation and you see the third generation start to show up, uh, it, it's exciting. But at the same time, when you begin to realize, I now need to start pulling away, it, it's, it's challenging. And, and it's challenging also because, you know, you're, you were there in the very beginning uh, when you were chief cook and bottle washer and you did everything. Uh, I, I think in our first office, my wife and I used to, you know, bring furniture and paintings down to the office whenever a client was showing up because we couldn't <laughs> afford it in the office <laughs> and at home. Um, so, you know, you, you did whatever you could do. And, and that, you know, initial sacrifices in building a firm – you live it, you own it, you know it, and you're going to be giving it to, you know, a, a new group of advisors who, who are going to have different challenges. They weren't your challenges. So it, it's hard, right? But you then have to look at it from the other perspective and say, but if I don't do this, what are the consequences? And the consequences on the other side are much more significant. So you have to put away your, your own personal motivations, emotions, things of that nature, and say, I have to do this because it's the right thing to do, first, for our clients. Secondly, for this, this team, you know, you have people that work for you. You need to provide stability and longevity of your, your firm, right? And it's the smart thing to do for yourself personally because at some point – you're not going to be as effective as you were 10 years ago or 15 years ago. Um, I get on a plane nowadays to go see a client, and I probably don't have the same energy at the end of the trip as I did 10 years ago. You start to slow down. Um, and my, my conversation with my advisors has always been, when I get to the point where I'm not as impactful or as effective, my expectation is you're going to tell me because I don't want to be there unless I'm on top of my game. I don't want to be there unless I can provide true value. And, you know, if you look at all the different studies out there, when, when people are younger, they have different abilities and skills. Mm -hmm. And when you're older, what do you have when you're older? Hopefully some experience, hopefully some wisdom. And at that point, you have to start shifting and saying, this is my value add to the firm, to the clients. Maybe not being up on the most cutting-edge technology or the newest and best investment idea out there. But, yeah, I've seen this before. In fact, it's, uh, uh, it's, it's kind of known to people in business that when you, when you begin the career, uh, you are very high on the energy scale but low on the wisdom scale. And as you get older, you're low on the energy scale but high on the wisdom scale. And at exactly the age of 55 is when that inflection point occurs. <laughs> so I'm slightly past the inflection point, so that's why I'm starting to think uh -oh. about this now. I have it coming. <laughs> oh, that's great. Well, so, Mark, you just heard Brad's response to emotions. What else would you add to that? I think we tend to bury emotions a lot when this discussion occurs. Uh, I kind of think of life in thirds, where in the first third you're – you're, you're learning, you're accumulate, accumulating knowledge and uh, experience and the tools and the skills to uh, deal with life. I think in the second, third, you're accumulating wealth and life experiences that enrich uh, what you're doing. I think in the third, third, you're thinking about what impact you're going to leave and what legacy you're going to leave uh, beyond what you've been doing. And so as we kind of look at life's transitions, we have different emotions from ebullience to depression to hope and expectations that those behind are, are there. I think what happens, in my experience, I've probably consulted on a thousand different succession plans back in the day when I was doing that. And uh, it's interesting what people get consumed by, but uh, it ultimately is not the money, uh, though that can be a factor because there are advisors who live uh, with great jealousy that they haven't accumulated as much wealth as their clients. Uh, but it's more about uh, recognizing that their end is near, 
their end of what they've done or what they're known for. And I think that their identity in the community tends to be the greatest one uh, for recognizing that ego is part of their fulfillment and not in a bad way. It just is very real. Uh, I think the, the second knowing that you're not learning quite at the same rate that you did before uh, feels like a muscle that's not developing, and, and that becomes a point of irritation. Uh, I think third, there's this tendency to view those who are coming up behind you who have a motivation, let's say, to buy into your business, especially if you want to do uh, an internal succession, where you tend to get resentful of them just wanting to do an affordable transaction. So uh, I think that the, the beauty of the business of financial advice is you're probably dealing more with emotion than you are with money. Would you agree with that? I, I would. I think money is very secondary. It is. And so if you kind of consider that your whole relationship with your clients is not necessarily about how smart you are with money, but the fact that you can translate the feelings about risk and opportunity and whether I have enough or whether I'm making an impact – that's an emotional reaction. So how can you turn that inward? And perhaps it would be a good idea to seek counseling for that part of the life's transition, that just like doctors, we have to heal ourselves somehow, but we may want to think about who do we talk to to help us think through what ultimately become irrational emotions in some cases. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. I think that the first attempt to think through succession planning probably occurred for me 10 years ago. And I said, okay, this is great. I'm getting well ahead of this. And I'd read all the studies and the commentary about this, and I'm thinking I'm being very proactive. But to your point, Mark, um, the challenge for me was the emotional one because I immediately felt like I was being put out to pasture. And I, I realized a couple things. One, the succession plan that I was pursuing was not going to be appropriate. It, it, it didn't feel right. So from a culture standpoint, whatever the case may be, I just wasn't ready. Um, interestingly, though, as I kind of stepped back and, and tried to become a little more self-aware through that process, now as I'm entering into it, I actually find I'm excited. I probably, my, my, my energy or enthusiasm for the work I do has gone up dramatically over the past couple of years because I'm seeing the excitement in this younger generation coming up, and it's, it's contagious, and it's, it's fun. And I'm probably having more fun today than I have in the last 15 years of my practice. So hopefully that's a good sign that we're on the right track um, because the emotional part, I agree with you, can be, can be very difficult to manage through. And the first time I think I failed at it, the second time I'm now looking at this and saying, wow, this is a lot of fun. This is great. And the beauty of this is really partly compartmentalizing the, the emotion, but it's also recognizing that you have a new mission. And the mission is not continual accumulation, but it's entering into that third phase. And so what I think one of the hurdles to succession planning the way it's defined today is that succession planning is not the same as sale planning. Succession planning begins with the client succession or perhaps the management succession, but we have to deal with both of those issues to say, will the business and the relationships continue after I'm gone? Because voluntarily or involuntarily, I'm disappearing. So if I can deal with how I create continuity in the business, then the transaction part of it becomes more clear. And I think that we have to separate those sorts of discussions instead of going to what's the price, what are the terms, what are the financial realities of this deal, and more about will my clients be tended to, will my employees be tended to, will this business continue, and can I achieve fulfillment that way? I think there's three stakeholders in this whole thing. It's clients first. It's your staff. A lot of people forget about just because the big check is being put out there for you uh, as the founder or the owner of the firm. Um, your staff matters. And when we get into conversations around that with the current succession plans that we're working with, it becomes a, a big factor in how they're thinking about the succession of the practice. And then finally, obviously, the owner needs to be considered. Uh, but I love that you've reframed your purpose, Brad, uh, into helping people, and it's no different than helping your clients. And I think, you know, again, great financial advisors are are service oriented, 
And whenever you can feel the impact of bettering someone's life, that's a good thing. And it's nice to see that you're being rewarded for that. Yeah. So at some point, you do have to talk about the deal structure. You do have to talk about terms. I think the emotional side clearly has to be the first hurdle you go over. And I think you covered that pretty extensively. But let's get into a um, little bit about the structure of, of deals, the valuation of deals. Mark, I know you've done a ton of work on this. Uh, maybe walk us through um, how, how you know, Brad or anybody going down the succession plan uh, process is, is thinking of valuations and deal terms. So uh, the first question is, what exactly are we valuing? And I think that we have to get great clarity on that because we hear numbers that tend to confuse the marketplace. As an example, an internal transition where you're selling minority stakes to individuals is far different than selling uh, a majority stake to uh, another entity. And accepting that is important. There's a different consequence, a different reality, but it's different. Uh, the, the second uh, part of this is that most owners of advisory firms get two forms of reward, a reward for labor for the, for the things that they did and a reward for ownership or risk. And we have to understand whether or not they've paid themselves fairly and will continue to pay themselves fairly for continuing the business and if there's anything left over. Uh, so knowing what we value and knowing uh, what the return is going to be on that makes it easier to think about what the question is going to be. The third step is uh, that uh, when we're valuing a business, there are really three elements that we're taking into account. Uh, the first element is uh, the cash flow, uh, what often people refer to as EBITDA. Uh, so the notion of what's left over after everybody's paid and all the expenses are covered the second component is growth. Uh, what will be the perpetual rate of growth in this business uh, that we can uh, expect? And the third is risk, meaning what's the degree of certainty or uncertainty that that growth in cash flow will continue? So cash flow divided by risk minus growth is really the simplistic way of coming up with the value. What I think in many cases sellers think is that they've built a business to a certain size and so uh, just based on history, people should be paid a high multiple. My concern is that if the average client is the same age as the selling advisor, and if they are in deaccumulation phase, uh, if, they're, if they're not growing organically, then what is the transferred entity there? Is it one that is likely to continue the way it has, or is it really a depleted oil well? We have to begin to understand that. So value is a function of the future. And when we look at measuring the future, it's cash flow risk minus growth. Uh, that will help to define where we are. Then we can get into the terms. Brad, what's your response to hearing that? Well, I, I, actually, I, I agree with a lot of it. I, I think the problem always comes down to when you're doing a transaction is, is the seller always has an inflated value of what they think the firm is worth. Um, the buyer is probably looking at it many times a little bit more objectively because they're taking in a lot of these metrics that Mark is talking about. But it, it's pretty much common sense if you think about it. Mm. You know, if you have uh, a multi-generational practice, if you have high retention rates, if you have very profitable clients, if the business is very sticky, if you have repeatable processes, if you've institutionalized your practice and your workflows. I mean, all these things start to add value. Um, on the other hand, if you have a lot of AUM under management, but, you know, your clients are significantly older and you've done no work with the next generation and the assets are going to flow out, it doesn't matter if you're at a billion or two billion or 200 billion, your multiple is going to reflect that. The other problem we always have, and it's, I think not just in our industry but any industry, is somebody hears a multiple and they attach that multiple to their business regardless. And obviously it, it doesn't work that way. Um, and that's the seller's many times unreasonable expectations compared to the reality of, of what market value may be. That's a that's a great example of in in – in valuation theory, uh, not as much weight is given to market comparables as is given in this business. And so uh, if, if you assume going in that all advisory firms are equal, 
that they have the same types of clients, that they're all growing at the same rate, that they're generating the same margins and the same fees, and that your staff is equally competent, then I suppose you could say we should give 100% weight to what the comparables are. The reality is that we have to look at unique investments. And that's why, you know, I, I often point out the, the ironies in this business is that when we're looking at making investment recommendations for a client, we're looking at each circumstance in a unique way. What do we have to consider? But when we look at our own business, uh, we tend to have an inflated perception of what, uh, of what reality is. So, um, and I'm okay with that. I mean, if, if you can find a greater fool to pay a higher price, you should do it. <laughs> but the reality is that at some point, particularly when you're doing an internal transition, you have to say, uh, what is fair market value with willing buyers and willing sellers both being fully informed of all the facts? That's number one. Number two is, are you recognizing what the future prospects are, not just the pain and suffering you've endured to get here? Yeah, I, I think that's key. I mean, you have to take a nuanced approach to valuing any firm. Uh, I think early in the discussion, we brought up the idea of human capital. Well, human capital in a firm is extremely important, especially in the case of a transaction. You know, do you have an experienced, professional, hopefully younger, you know, team that can continue to grow the business and continue the growth path of it? If so, probably you have a higher multiple. Uh, if everybody is ready to walk out right after the transaction, then your multiple is probably going to be lower, and, and as it should, because there's going to be greater risk to the buyer at that point. But this is where you ultimately get into the question of terms. So if, um, you know, any transaction, is, as both of you well know, is really uh, negotiating risk. That's what you're trying to get to. The more risk you assume, uh, the better part of the deal you're going to get. The more risk I assume, the better part of the deal I'm going to get. So if we can come up with an informed approach to what the valuation is, now it becomes a question of how much are you willing to put down, how much are you willing to guarantee, uh, what will be the payment terms over what period of time. So where does that risk relationship come into this negotiation and it's going to inform what it is? Back in the day, uh, most of these transactions were done uh, very much on an earnout basis, and there was a very low downstroke. And this expectation that if the clients stay and it generates a return, then I'll pay you on that basis over a three to five year period. Uh, now, in some cases, we're seeing crazy down payments. All the risk shifts to the buyer, and they're still paying a high multiple. So uh, it concerns me that. There is this little bit of a bubble that if we ever have a market downturn or margins really get uh, compressed seriously, that that people will be overpaying for something that doesn't generate appropriate appropriate return. I read the other day um, talking about uh, having it be a seller's market and you know the valuations, the amount of money being poured out, as you were just commenting, and I think. Somebody quoted that there would be a 70% reduction in value with a 20% drop in the market. Now, well, I don't know how the math worked, but that scared me a little bit. You know, uh, I'm going to have to defer to Brad as to how he would view uh, the, the total uh, portfolio of assets that he manages on behalf of clients and what the reality is. I think at a point in time, there is, there is an impact, but... I'm going to repeat it again, that value is a function of the future, and it's not a moment in time. It is only a moment in time that we're beginning with, but we're saying, what goes beyond this? And so if you believe that an adjustment in the market is permanent, then that may be a proper conclusion. But if you think that it's temporary, as I would, then you have to say, all right, maybe we reset the starting point, but what does it look like from here? Uh, I think that adjustments in the market, and we've seen this in other industries where there have been booms, that people finally have a reality that says there's too much money chasing after bad deals and such a desire to accumulate critical mass and not a desire to build a profitable enterprise, uh, it becomes a concern. Uh, back in, I don't know, it must have been the 80s, we were looking at a number of industries that were consolidating, like medical practices, hospitals, funeral homes, uh, uh, waste management companies. Uh, you can think of franchises, that there were a number of industries that, that 
seem to always go through this period of consolidation, and very few end up becoming long-term enduring businesses. I mean, you know, think about who's the dominant waste management company. That's probably it. But who's the dominant medical firm or the dominant uh, franchise company or the dominant funeral home? I don't know that they that they exist. So something happened along the way. Rather not know the funeral home. <laughs> well, and, and it comes down to also going to your, you know, example of what if the market dropped, what's it going to do to valuations? I think it comes down to both perspective and priorities. So I could easily argue that a good firm in a down market is going to have the ability to capture more assets because of the volatility occurring. Good. So as a seller, I would say, well, my valuation should go up because I'm the team you want right now to facilitate additional growth. On the other hand, if all you're trying to do is purchase a revenue stream, so as we know, some people have gone out to buy RIAs, just because of the repeatable revenue stream, they may say, well, the revenue stream, the cash flow I'm going to receive is going down. Therefore, I'm going to immediately adjust the multiple because I'm not really investing in this long-term revenue stream. I just want the revenue stream today. So it's perspective. And I think it's important for both buyers and sellers to understand what are their priorities in, in contemplating a transaction. For the seller... Again, I would say the money should be secondary, but they should have a well-defined set of priorities or objectives that they're trying to achieve, just as the buyer coming in should say, I am strategically buying this company. Does it make sense? If so, why? Especially as we're looking at a lot of the tuck-ins and the roll-ups as we're seeing firms get significantly larger as they're trying to build scale. Are they really making good transactions or are they just getting bigger? And, and in fact, I, I think that's a great explanation. My hunch, I, I don't have validation of this, but my hunch is that one reason why there has been justification for higher valuations is that the buyers are sharing more of the synergies with the seller. And so uh, ultimately they're saying, how much of the cash flow am I going to get when this deal is done? And what am I willing to pay for it? So I might make adjustments in advance to the things that go away so that the cash flow is greater. That, that could be one factor that goes into it. But I think Brad is exactly right. There are uh, many financial buyers who recognize that you want to be quick. You want to get to size fast. Uh, you want to be able to flip this thing at some point. So if you do that all with, with great momentum, then it can be an extraordinary transaction. Uh, whether it's sustainable is another question. Well, I think that comes down to time horizons then. So if you look at the private equity world today, there's a lot of transactions that are occurring under the assumption that they're going to make another turn on the investment. There'll be that second bite of the apple. Well, if you're doing that, then you're going back to the greater fool theory. Can I buy this company, turn it around, and sell it again at a higher multiple at a higher price? Well, that, that's a business model. But if you're buying something because you're saying, I want to create something sustainable, well, then you do have to look at the valuations right now and say, are they inflated? And, you know, and as, as someone going through succession planning, I'm, I'm talking my book down in, in some respects. Right. But the reality <laughs> is... Um, I would never want anyone who was not well-informed to do a transaction with me. I, I only want to do a transaction if I decide to do one someday in the future with the very best. I want to enhance my firm. I don't want to degrade it in any way. And this, this in a way, goes back to this fiduciary concept of what about the clients? What about the clients and all this? And are they are they – being introduced to uh, a new, stronger, better firm as a result of this process. Uh, recently, there was a lot of publicity around uh, a deal where uh, I scratched my head about because uh, the, it was an internal succession where the son and another advisor uh, didn't have any money to pay dad for the practice. And so dad says, I'll make it easy on you. I'm going to pay uh, – you're going to pay me 50 percent of the revenue for the next 20 years. And so from a cash flow standpoint, no sweat. And I'm interpreting from that he's not paying them much now anyhow. <laughs> uh, but basically it's um, 
uh, it's a 20-year term at, a, at, at an extraordinary multiple because that's 50% of the cash flow that goes to dad in this process. So I did a quick calculation on it, and that is a yield close to a 20-year treasury. So you'd say, okay, a higher risk investment but a lower yield return, you'd have to say, is this a good deal? So I think this is where people uh, tend to think uh, creating ease in the transaction is the same as valuing the business properly. And buyers have to be a little bit more aware of what kind of a deal they're getting into and whether they're going to have resentment, particularly if it's your father, if you're going to have resentment in the transaction or whether it makes sense. Let's stick on that for a second. When does it become prohibitive for the next generation to be able to afford a practice? I think if the cash flow, if the cash flows, the deal goes. It's a simple way to think about it. So if the valuation is justified by the cash flow uh, over a reasonable period of time, let's say five to seven years, then uh, then it's just a question of the payment terms. And so uh, so the seller might like to get uh, cash in the barrel head but it may not be practical. So you can structure in the terms a way in which to get a payment that reflects interest rates and other components that come into play. So you might say, for example, uh, the value will get adjusted each year based on the increase in the business, uh, but, I'm, but the minimum is going to be what we agreed to at the start. Uh, so I think, uh, I think we find this in many circumstances where uh, where it's difficult for younger people to buy the whole firm. But this is one reason why you have multiple uh, buyers in small practices. It's the way accounting firms and law firms and other practices exist is that you start selling minority shares earlier. I think that one of the mistakes that happens is that owners of firms think that it got to the size only because of them. And all those people who are in the firm contributed no value. And that's a big mistake is when they started to invest in operating leverage, their reward for ownership increased by orders of magnitude. The reward for labor did not, but the reward for ownership did. And that has to be recognized in this transaction as well. Yeah, it comes down to, to return on investment. So if you're, if you're doing an internal succession or, or approaching that as one of your options, the people that are buying – have to know that they're getting a return on their investment. So terms can be adjusted, things of that nature, but if there's no value to them for the risks that they're taking in investing in this firm, then it doesn't make sense. So yeah, I, I probably wouldn't do the 20-year deal with a, with a treasury <laughs> yield return. Um, I would probably pass and, and look for my, my next option. Um, but it has to make sense for both parties. Whether it's it's a liquidity event, an external transaction, an internal, there has to be a rate of return. There has to be a recognition of the risk that's measurable, and it has to make sense for both parties. And there's no there's no reason why sellers should have to uh, make a sacrifice, uh, but they have to consider what the overall objective is. And if it's if it's purely a financial transaction, then you should go to the highest highest bidder. But if there are more elements going into this consideration, uh, like recognition of the value that the individuals brought in the first place and who's going to be treating the clients right, I think that that tends to produce a different outcome. And I would say the, the deals that Dynasty's M&A team is working on, especially around succession, um, they're doing it for growth, they're doing it for scale, but they're also identifying future talent that they feel could be there in the future to take over the business and I, steward it. Yeah, I, I would like to see more firms create an ownership track for people earlier uh, so that you're creating the stake in the business that it just becomes a natural transition at some point. In a way, you can almost think about this as your float. So but I want to give up true ownership control, whatever that means, uh, then I might let 49% of the ownership into the internal market until I'm ready to make the full transition. But there's a way that you begin bridging that gap between a 100% sale and a 51% sale that you can, you can make it more digestible uh, for future buyers. 
Yeah, I, I would say, you know, outside of those just seeking a pure liquidity event, and I agree with you, Mark, then it's just you sell to the highest bidder because you're, you're about to ride off into the sunset. Um, for those who are, are attempting to do a transaction that will enhance the, the practice in the future to be the, the fiduciary for their clients, as well as for the team that got them there, and I, I agree with that completely, uh, no advisor ever walked out there and was able to do what he did without the team that was standing exactly. behind him. Um, then, you know, you're, you're looking at, at different ways to achieve this. And, you know, in my case, you know, I look at this and say, if I want to accomplish all those objectives, if those objectives or priorities are important to me, well, it's probably not going to be a liquidity event. It's probably going to have to be a transition that takes time. Yep. It could include both an internal transaction so it, it could be shifting ownership within the team. It could be uh, perhaps partnering with another firm, a merger of equals or greater. It could include a tuck-in where you're, you're bringing in a team, not just because of assets, because there's human capital there that's going to help fulfill a future need of the firm. It could be management. It could be a rainmaker, whatever the case may be. So I don't think it's one or the other. I think for many firms going forward, if if their objectives are similar to that, it's going to be a, a multi-prong approach, not just I'm a seller, you're a buyer. Exactly. Yeah. Well, I think you also have to walk into it with um, if you're going to build up the value of that enterprise going forward, the partnership has to work not only monetarily but culturally – I hear a lot of firms say, oh, we have to have a cultural fit, when I don't think it's that. I think it's an evolution of a culture um, and that will make it thrive and become that new business that uh, is going to determine the enterprise growth. Talk about culture a little bit as you step into this, Brad. Um, so I, actually, I think that's a great comment. I didn't quite think about it from that perspective, but I think it's very appropriate. So advisors will always talk about, well, it has to be a cultural fit. And I, I think I would probably say it's not a cultural fit. I think it's more of what you just talked about. You have to be able to sit down with people and say, I, I genuinely like these people and we communicate well because the culture is going to evolve when these, these people get together to whatever – is going to be in the future. But if you don't have a base where you say, I like these people, I like working with them, I like talking with them, we communicate well, then you're not going to have a foundation from which to create the new culture. So the numbers can work, but if you don't have, I guess what it comes down to is the relationships that you can build a new culture on, the numbers don't matter at that point. I think that's exactly right. Uh, in fact, I would almost use the term culture ad instead of culture fit. Uh, that I think whenever you're – there's a certain alchemy in these relationships. And I think when you introduce um, new people into your lives, uh, you find some who stimulate you and some who don't, some who drag you down. Uh, and in business, I think that you find an enrichment in relationships and sometimes it comes from being bigger. Sometimes it just becomes uh, part of being more innovative and open to what change would be. Uh, I wouldn't say that entrepreneurial businesses are necessarily great cultures by themselves. Uh, uh, I've met many founders of firms that put the fun in dysfunction, and <laughs> they, you know, they're they're they can be real tyrants in how they run the business. And sometimes the people left behind have no clue what to do because they've been ruled with an iron fist. And so, uh, you know, sometimes there's real, uh, a, a real incision that has to occur uh, in order to, to make this right. So I think, I think Brad is exactly correct, is that if you're thinking about a combination or, uh, or inclusion, particularly in the ownership club within your own firm, uh, there has to be a belief in things like, do they share my passion? Do they have my sense of integrity? Are they committed to learning? Do they lead by example? Do they demonstrate accountability? Do they show respect for others? And frankly, I would make that part of a, of a test as to whether or not I would let somebody in, regardless of whether or not 
they were high, high performers or those elements things that I that I value. You have to go pretty well down the path of due diligence to make sure that the culture is right. We had a few instances where um, started due diligence process, came in for a meeting, terrific people, great practice, met for lunch, that was terrific. But then we went out for a dinner after we did a VIP and not so much. Yeah, folks got some drinks in them and then started to share some really disappointing vantage points on life. And uh, it just we just decided you just can't go any further with that. You can't live with that. So yeah, it's hard to get married after your first Tinder date. That's right. I, I think it's uh, one of those things that we have to be conscious of. Uh, when when I sold uh, the consulting firm we owned to Moss Adams in the mid '90s, they'd already done a series of acquisitions, and they they became quite a big accounting firm yeah. uh, as a result of it. But uh, the the partner in charge of the firm, the managing partner of the firm, uh, had a very, very disciplined approach. He took 12 months uh, to get acquainted with the principals and the firms that he was bringing in. And uh, and he was very disciplined in the things he was looking for and how he would socialize it. And for every 10 deals that he looked at, uh, he would go for one of them. And uh, for all the reasons that Brad said. So, so you can deal with the economics if you can get to whether I want to be with these people or not, whether I want to be partners with these people or not. But uh, I think I think that it really makes the argument that this is not just a hot dating scene. This is this is a huge business decision that has implications for a lot of people. So uh, so don't use rules of thumb. Uh, to make uh, conclusions as to what's going to work. Uh, and don't make superficial elements be important. There's a lot more to it. No doubt. Um, let's go one more topic. Then I'll let you guys go back to your day jobs. Thank you so much again for joining us. Um, you. you put a price tag on a practice. You figure out deal terms. You think that the culture is going to work. Um, but really the true value, and I, and I I talk a lot with the folks who kind of come through our corporate deal desk in the M&A world. It's not until the transition and the integration of that team that you're truly going to feel the value of the transaction. Would you agree or disagree with that? I would say that it takes three years for – if you're talking about an acquisition, right? If you're talking about an acquisition, it probably takes you three years to uh, achieve a full integration. So the first year is all ritual sniffing. The second year is some uh, degree of integration. The third year, it has to be full adoption of the culture and the business that you're creating. And there has to be an expectation of what success looks like after that. So uh, obviously, there's a big difference between uh, the, the proposal and uh, the wedding night. And I think that we have to kind of consider what that means in business transitions, but have a managed process around that integration uh, so that it isn't just an accident uh, that you're together, but uh, it's going to take work, man. You're, you're, now, you're now spending every waking hour with these individuals, and you have to think about what's that process for being candid with each other to build a, an outcome. Fred? Yeah, I, I'd agree. I think on the other side of the transaction – you now have to execute. And in order to execute, there has to be expectations by everyone involved as to what you're trying to accomplish, what timeline you're going to apply to that so that people can say, all right, well, we're here today. This is where we want to be in the future. And we know what we have to do to to get there and how. Um, So... I think too many of us focus on the transaction part. Mm, yeah. Everyone focuses on the multiple. What they don't do is ask the hard questions up front, which they should. Sometimes they're uncomfortable questions that you have to ask people. But if you don't fully vet the process, then there's going to be some surprises you probably don't want somewhere down the road. And you're going to get to the point that the expectations weren't truly understood by everybody involved. And as soon as you have that variance in expectations, well, you're going to have people say, no, wait a second, I thought, and and as soon as you hear those words, or I assumed, then we have a problem. Mm. So. 
Yeah, missed expectations are 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 huge, especially. You know, I remember running practice management at Morgan Stanley, and we started talking about you know client service. And I said, it's pretty simple. Say what you're going to do and do it. Um, and that usually is pretty good client service if you're doing the right thing for them. So um, this has been terrific. I, does you guys have any um, last comments that you'd like to share? Um, you know, the only thing I would say right now is, is being in this process and spending a lot of time thinking about it. I guess what I would say to people in similar positions right now, forget about the money. That's the last part of the process. And if you get everything else right, the numbers will come together. The numbers will make sense. And the best deals are the deals where everybody feels that they got shorted just a little bit. And that's probably when you know you have a really good deal on the table. Yeah, great advice. I accept it. And that's it, Mark? That's it. <laughs> All right, terrific. Thank you, Brad, thank you so much for coming in and sharing your thoughts. You're Mark, welcome. as always, great seeing you and, and uh, learn a lot every time I hear you talk. Um, and for those of you who want to find out more information about how Dynasty can help both with financing opportunities uh, for succession or even creating that succession plan, we've created a uh, M&A uh, Dynasty Reality Checklist uh, has 20 different behaviors and activities that if you walk through, a lot of it was discussed here. Uh, there's also some other things that might be additive to uh, helping you just get down the path. Reduce emotions, deal with them, be open-minded, uh, care about culture, care about client, and I don't think we can do too many things wrong after that. Thank you. All right, thank you. Thanks, Joe. I want to thank all the listeners for joining us on the Powering Independence podcast. I also want to have a special thanks to our guests. Thank you both very much for joining us. And to all you listeners, please stay tuned as we will be sending out another podcast in the near future.